0: Welcome to Episode 4 of Season 2 of The Rigged Podcast. In this episode, Jamie, Ilias, and Chris discuss some breaking news in the Drug Lab case with a couple of judgment recommendations coming from former employees of the Attorney General's office who were involved in this case. The boys also discuss the state Drug Lab's disastrous handling and reporting of Class E drug classifications. Enjoy. All right, we are back. It's good to be back. It's been a while. And um, ironically, uh, we have some breaking news in a, a case, again, that is almost 10 years old. More breaking news from this case. What uh, what's, what's transpired recently, Chris? So, uh,
1: hearing officer Alan Rose, who was appointed by the BBO to review, review the uh, Foster, Kaczmarek, and Werner uh, complaint, uh, essentially decided that uh, all of them decided, needed to face justice and all of them needed to uh, face sanctions. So Werner is apparently uh, getting reprimand. He suggested that uh, Ms. Foster should lose her license for a year and a day and uh, potentially uh, when her license is reviewed, She needs to go before the bar again in order to demonstrate that she's capable of being an attorney. And then for Ann Kaczmarek, he suggested a 2 year and a day suspension, which is a little less than I thought would happen. But similarly, she's going to have to go before the board again and try and advocate for the ability to practice law in the future, which I think is an uphill battle for her.
0: You think so? You think that will be tough for her to uh, get that back? And what what does that involve? I mean, you don't have to go too far into it, but do you know what that process is like? Well, I mean, the hearing
1: officer's decision noted various opinions talking about, you know, the closest comparable situation that he could find. And at the outset, he said, there's there's nothing like this in U.S. history, right? (laughs) In U.S. history. See, that's the crazy thing. You know, is, is that true? There's nothing, well, there's nothing like this, at least in the annals of our law. And so he looked for the closest analog, and he found stuff from several different states. And he tried to say, "All right, here is a situation where someone liked to judges, someone submitted uh, false pleadings and whatnot, and tried to come up with the most comparable sort of middle of the line result he could." Right. But I felt as though based upon what was presented to him, the uh, the sanctions could have been much more severe.
0: Well, based on what she did and, and how it impacted people, right? Because that kept people in jail when she like for for at least a year, if not longer, with her refusal to cooperate and and them knowing, you know, the at least who knows how much of they knew what the extent of uh Ferox drug use was? And, and, like, I mean, it's questionable. I there's emails that show that they had seen the you know medical at, at least for two years, right? That that was the thought up front mm-hmm. uh, that, that they knew that she that uh that Farrakh had uh told her you know a uh, therapist or she had those worksheets in her car that said that she right. was using. So, that's multiple mentioned multiple times,
1: and the hearing officer, uh, actually for the other two defendants, uh, Foster and Werner, he found, you know, some mitigating circumstances. For Kaczmarek, he said there were none. Which is uh. interesting, and I think that uh, out of all the opinions to issue out of that office, uh, particularly with regard to prosecutors, this is uh, sort of the, it's pretty significant, you know, to say that this prosecutor did something that affected so many people and there are no mitigating factors in support of her defense. I I thought that was somewhat extraordinary.
0: Wow. And then to only get two years, right? Or of a suspended license. You know, also, you know, I, I, I found that quizzical when I
1: looked at it. And again, I haven't been able to take the chance to review everything that he cited, but he apparently canvassed, uh, the rest of the country for BBO decisions or similar where something not on this magnitude, but uh, a similar type of misrepresentation occurred both to the court, to supervising attorneys and whatnot. And, you know, his best guess, I guess, was you know that suspension that he recommended. Wow. Well, it is. I mean, you know, it's that, sort of a- that goes to the paucity of cases where, prosecutorial misconduct has come up and actually been written about
2: right, it, right. or an indictment of our of our legal system's failure to hold prosecutors accountable for the almost unfettered power that they have uh and um i, I think I, I don't know if it was today but uh, there was a case um in the news out of philadelphia about a, a detective who had been uh, I guess, uh, extracting false confessions from people and, and, and suborning perjury for years in multiple cases. And there was actually a retrial of a case in which the defendant had been, who had been convicted um, and supposedly confessed had been exonerated by DNA evidence. And the prosecutor came up with what I would say objectively was a, a completely ridiculous and borderline intentionally frivolous uh, theory of the case. Um, and I assume there's going to be no sanction against that prosecutor. And this has been going on in, for years, you know, name your big city, Chicago, New York, Boston. Um, so I think, it, but, but what strikes me is in those cases, it's a, it's a one-off. In this case, the prosecutors had the lives of thousands of people in their hands. And so, um, you know, two years um, in, in balance to that, but then of course- Perak and Dukin were not sentenced to terribly long uh, uh, periods of uh, incarceration, despite the fact that they also affected the rights of many thousands. So I guess something to digest and think about, but Chris, I thank you for bringing that um, to our attention. That is, uh, we like to break news uh, on this podcast. So, um.
1: Yeah. I mean, the last thing I'd like to say is that, uh, you know, during the oral arguments in front of the SGC and CPCS versus AG, uh, someone from the Conwell side suggested that indictments might follow for Ms. Kaczmarek and the other people who uh, committed a fraud upon the court. And that never happened. <laughs> right. And it, it, so, and I
0: mean, this is going to be at most, I mean, if they're not indicted, then this is a, I mean, to me is a total slap on the wrist. What were you going to say, Ilias?
2: Well, I I was going to say if one hasn't come out yet, uh, I think it's fair to say one won't come out. Uh, I mean, uh, right, absolutely. uh, I mean, sometimes there's, uh, you know, we've all been living in this world where people now open their phones in the morning to see if if certain people they want to see indicted have been indicted yet, and years pass and there's no indictment. So at some point, it's safe to say that there isn't one coming, um, and that's probably how. And
0: There is zero desire to do that. Zero, less than zero. And, and uh,
2: in other news, meanwhile, uh, Ms. Rollins uh, is, I guess, in a form of limbo, um, uh, awaiting an appointment to be United States uh, Attorney um, for the District of Massachusetts. As I understand it, I, I might be behind a day in the news cycle, but I think that's pending in the Senate. And that's an interesting issue because, A, I don't know what Social justice will be achieved out of that office, but B that sort of means Boston or, or Suffolk County might take a step uh, in the wrong direction uh, potentially, or maybe maybe not. Maybe there's going to be somebody who's going to follow the lead, but that's an interesting uh, 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 sort of wild card wrinkle to what's been going on recently.
0: Yeah, agreed. Uh, she, you know, I ta- it's funny though. Listen to Tom Cotton and you know people like that on the Senate floor kind of based her about you know not uh being too about being too lenient on criminals and whatnot and then with the same you know breath not care about the insurrection or november or uh, january 6th or anything like that not wanting indictments for those people and and just kind of wanting to sweep all that under the rug but if it's low-level drug offenders or minimal uh you know, people committing nonviolent crimes, then throw the book at them. That's uh, that's the general philosophy. And I think it, you know, that that's encompassed by people like that. And I hope that we're moving forward, but it's it's tough when you still have people like that kind of trying to drag it backwards. Right. And, you know, Rachel Rollins is interesting because she um, is, you know, clearly ha- it has been trying to, to get some change done. But at the same time, I think, a lot of people think that she's probably not doing it quick enough, but, uh, you know, she's, she's up against a ton of, you know, obstacles. Like the, the, the problem with this is like, it's so, there's such a dichotomy between what people, what one side thinks is fair and what another side thinks is fair. And no one really looks at the nuance and uh, looks underneath the fingernails when they say people are being too lenient and there's, you know, they, they don't they don't say after they say people are being too lenient that America also has the most people in prison of any other country, you know, somehow that never makes the the news media.
2: Well, uh, Rachel Rollins playbook, which uh, I, in general, I'm supportive of. And I, I, in general, give her good marks, um, uh, for what she's tried to do and what she has done. But that playbook, I don't see working as well. Federally, Chris, you may have more insight on this, but um, a the low the idea that there's these low level federal offenses that we can sort of uh, brush off. I, I don't know if that's true. I think the federal offenses in general are um, very serious um, and in fact are I think disproportionately uh, overpunished federally. so um,
1: and uh, there's an interesting well, I mean there was this whole thing about uh, parents being prosecuted for um, trying to get their kids into, I believe really schools, so I feel like maybe there could have been a better use of federal funds than that. But anyway. you think, Aunt Becky? But anyway, sorry. That but that's not
2: serving. That's true. But that's not serving the constituency that Rachel Rollins actually cares about, and we should care about. That's protecting upper middle class families that um, uh, care can care about getting your kid into Stanford, but can't do it the regular way, which is just uh, uh, like. Uh, um, Jared Kushner just leave a suitcase of money outside the admission department's door. Um. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, so today we wanted to talk about, and I, I had sent these guys a um, a Word doc that I had made of some of the materials, uh, you know, that that we found, kind of uncovered as as we've been investigating this. We we've, we've been going over the classy or, or we've been going over uh the oig's re, uh supplemental report on um on the Hinton lab and part of that at the end if you remember was uh classy drugs and we said we were going to do that in another episode and then we, i'd like to do that in this one so classy drugs if you remember are uh you know, I think prescription drugs, correct? It's, it's prescription drugs that um, chemists identified by visual inspection and not necessarily running it through a GCMS or a machine. Do I have that correct, guys?
1: Well, the, the Hinton Drug Lab certainly did look at a whole bunch of pills and uh, classify it based on uh, visual inspection alone. And uh, that certainly did happen in class E pills. But why I was interjecting was it wasn't just those. So higher classifications of pills at times sometimes uh, were scrutinized in the same way, which is a problem. But um, that's not really the focus of our uh, discussion right now.
0: No. Right. We we want to talk about these class E drugs because... They play a very significant role in this case. And no one, and speaking of breaking news, this is 11 years old that a lot of this stuff happened. Some of the stuff that we're going on here, eight to 11 years old, the state has known about this for that long, multiple agencies, the OIG, the, the attorney general's office, all of these different, the attorney general's office, we did way back those uh, interviews they did with uh, Jim Hanchett and all of the um, uh, all the Amherst lab folks, they kept bringing up classy drugs. They kept bringing up Class classy drugs. And there's a reason they were doing that. It turns out because people were being sent to jail um, for, or prosecuted for classy drugs, for possession of classy drugs. Um, when the, the Hinton lab and the Amherst lab both knew that the drugs that they were trying to pass off as Class E in court were not actually Class E and not scheduled at all in Massachusetts, thereby not being um, illegal. Now, Chris, you had mentioned uh, John Verner, who got a one or who was recommended to have what a suspended sentence, or what, what was it for John? He just got a public reprimand, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, okay. So <laughs> public Excuse reprim- reprimand. <laughs> Excuse me. But he was uh, one of the main investigators of this uh, cl- of these classy e drugs for the Attorney General's office when he worked for them. He also prosecuted Dukin, and he or he was part of the prosecution team that prosecuted Dukin. And he has known for years that uh, uh, not just the Amherst lab and not just the Hinton lab, but the State Police lab as well, all knowingly falsely identified. Um, drugs, what, what they called BZP, uh, which is an ecstasy knockoff, uh, that was being identified as a classy drug by pretty much every lab in the state. I don't know about the UMass lab, but certainly state police, certainly Hinton, and certainly uh, Amherst were all doing that. I think you sent us some uh, attachments here,
1: emails with public records requests showing where was receiving or sending some emails demonstrating that.
0: Yes. So, well, let's start. So, we're gonna dial it back to April twenty second of twenty eleven. And, and I support,
2: Jamie, before you do that, can yeah. I just add one thing? Yes. Is, I think the definition. You know, I, I want to be a little bit more precise on Class E because I think there's an aspect of it um, that people need to understand, um, which is you know. Uh, has to do with sort of the outrage factor, right? Because a lot of people, when they hear drugs, they already sort of turn off their uh, caring um, uh, gene and and maybe stop listening. Um, but class C drugs are drugs not otherwise scheduled. So it's not, you know, cocaine, it's not uh, heroin, um, and it's uh, subject to a prescription. So, meaning if you have a prescription, you can have it. And it might be for anxiety. It might be for depression. It doesn't have to be, as I understand it, an, an opiate. Um, uh, and uh, and and so already there's a huge factor which doesn't get discussed, which is this is something that you might actually have a prescription for. If it's misidentified, I don't see how that prosecution stands up. Meaning, if I have a prescription for um, you know a, 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 an, an antidepressant and Hinton misidentifies it as uh, something else, a a different class E-drug that I don't have a prescription for, why is that illegal? If I I actually have a prescription, you just misidentified it. So I know that probably rarely happens, but that part gets such short shrift. So I think it's important to explain that this is something that's not uh, otherwise classified. So our society has said, this thing is not so bad that it can't even be lawfully uh, uh, prescribed. Uh, but to get it, you need a prescription, and we just don't think you have a prescription. But we're really not going to take our time to actually verify what it is. That's the problem, because if you don't verify what it is, the whole concept that it might be illegal is it could go out the window. Meaning, cocaine is illegal for pretty much anyone to have. So you don't, you know, misidentification is bad, but it, it only is bad in the sense that you you're trying to make sure it's cocaine, but. Class E, you absolutely have to know what it is because you absolutely have to know whether the person has a prescription. So I just want to um, re emphasize that point because I think people think of Class E as like, oh, it's just more of the same, but it's not. It's actually very different than all the other classes.
0: Right. But since it is visual inspection only, it's a catch all, which what the state officials called a catch all. Um, well that,
2: that's my point it's not a catch all it's not you got to you got it's got to be subject to the prescription requirement so if you don't if something doesn't need a prescription because the FDA doesn't know about it or doesn't agree that it should be used and you your legislature doesn't say it's illegal then it's not it's not illegal and it, and and you can't just use class e as sort of this um, a safety blanket which is a, apparently what all the law enforcement agencies that I'm aware of were doing
0: right and so this brings This brings me to a ruling that had happened. Um, was it with Rachel Rollins's attempt to dismiss all cases, Chris? That there was a ruling this week or within the last few weeks? The Escobar case.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh the defendant in that case had moved for a new trial on the basis that the evidence sample was tested at the Hinton lab. His uh Litigation actually, post-conviction litigation actually started in 2015 and it continued up until this day. But eventually, after more information was uncovered about both Farrick, uh, some of the other chemists of the lab, and also the uh, operations of the lab in general, uh, he continued to press his motion saying that uh, I think one of the chemists, other than Dukan and Farrak, who was involved in the testing of my sample, was also engaged in misconduct, and he pointed to, uh, subsequently, uh, opinions from an OIG expert saying that there were various chemists at the lab who had numbers on par with Annie Dukins that was indicative of fraud, and uh, eventually. Uh, the Suffolk County DA's office agreed to his motion for a new trial, not based upon any particular fraud uh, associated with the chemist that he said were involved with the testing, and the evidence sample in his case, but rather based upon the idea that the lab was so poorly mismanaged that the lab mismanagement itself constituted egregious governmental misconduct. Uh, so that w- that's been pending for the past few months. We just got a decision in that case, and the Superior Court said uh, it was going to deny the defendant's motion for any trial uh, associatedly. Uh, it also denied the Commonwealth's motion to report questions regarding the whole Hinton Lab and what should happen with the rest of the defendants because uh, the defendant in the particular case um, had an evidence sample that was not analyzed by Dukin or Farrick. And he couldn't point to something specific in the processing of his sample um, that was indicative of fraud or mismanagement
0: and so that's that's where they get you right there because there's no way he could unless you know unless he happened to luck upon some email with a you know that with a uh with it Where a chemist just happened to be saying, you know, I didn't actually test this, or you know, something out there that that would just be a home run. But when you when you narrow your scope as much as the Superior Court uh, did when saying we have to find fraud with your specific sample, um, I disagree with that. Obviously, disagree with that um, thought process because, it, and it, and it just goes to show again that the state is way more concerned with the law in this case than with the science. And- well, I mean, that has
1: always been the case in Brady and newly discovered evidence claims. What was interesting in the drug lab cases was that uh, they adopted a test that was first promulgated by the First Circuit and Ferrar versus the United States. And uh, essentially that's, you know, it could have been decided as a Brady decision, but instead they promulgated a test related to specific egregious governmental misconduct that the defendant was able to prove in that particular case. And what the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts, rightfully so, said in Scott was that uh, there's basically no way for a defendant to prove this. And I think that's the right. sense that you're hitting on. However, there have been defendants, and there currently still are defendants advocating for motions for new trials, who have been able to demonstrate misconduct in their particular cases.
0: Right. Right. And that, that it is a possibility. Like you could find something, you could do something and, but just the standards of the lab, like this is what is driving me crazy because the lab itself was so bad that like you can, what's more important isn't what the defendant proves it's is can the state prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, That The the tests in there are scientifically sound outside of, you know, Dukin and Farrak. And to me, there's no way they can prove that, given the OIG's reports, what they said about training, et cetera, what they said about test methods, what they said about following basic standards of quality that the lab just was completely deficient in. And that, for whatever reason, does not matter to the courts in the state. I don't know why. It, it it just doesn't like they they want to nitpick and and you know look at every case rather than just saying this place had no quality standards like imagine if your brother or sister were on trial for you know some of these cases it's i wouldn't test i wouldn't trust anything done in these labs you you can't
1: well i think the legal questions usually turn on what the evidence uh, was that was submitted by the parties and i i think that has been the problem in in trying to get to a final resolution to all these cases because it seems to be substantially incomplete in a a number of them, including Escobar and uh, some of the other decisions that were sent up, including Simmons.
0: Right. But also what, what hasn't been looked at, Chris, is the motives of the chemists themselves, right? Like, do they have a motive? Do they have an agenda? Was there a, a clear bias with all the chemists in the lab in general, towards the prosecutors, right? Because if you can prove that, then you can prove, hey, these people, you know they were look, they had a 96 percent positive test rate in this lab. Like, was there an agenda to help? And then you look at the emails of Annie Dukin telling prosecutors she wanted to lock people up and throw away the key. And, you know, I have emails from Farrakh saying similar things. I have emails from Kate Corbett uh, celebrating uh, prosecution victories in cases. Clearly, these chemists were biased. But
2: and I would add to that that you have to investigate the supervisors. Yes. Yes. Mean, the, the interesting thing about what we, what Chris, you kicked off, which is the recommendation for um, sanction for um, Werner, Kasmarik, and Foster, that's the classic setup, right? You have Werner, people maybe can't see my hands, but you have person on top, you have person in the middle, and you have person at the bottom, right? And the the traditional way to solve problems is to blame the person on the bottom, right? That's what we did with uh, uh, Annie Dukin. That's what we did with um, uh, Sonia Frock. Blame the person on the bottom. Don't ask about their conversations with their bosses. Um, and don't ask why their bosses were running interference for them in the case of Dukin. Uh, and, and then case closed. In the case of, of Kazmarek, you kind of now have a, a blueprint that suggests that she is responsible. And so there's this temptation to say, okay, she takes the blame. Foster was just following orders, you know, the classic sort of Nuremberg thing. Um, and, and, but, but don't go after the, 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 the architects if there are any. Don't even ask if there are. Don't ask if this was done by design. That's what should have been asked. Not what was the motive. Uh, the, uh, that question follows. The question should be, what was management doing? And was that driven by a motive? Because if you're following the, the, the prevailing wind, of course, it's going to be a lab-wide problem and you're going to have to kick out all these cases. It was much easier to tie it off and say, okay, this was Annie Dukin and no one else. Okay, well, okay, fine. It was also Sonia Farrakh but it was no one else. That was the conclusion that that, um, that uh, uh, um, our former attorney general reached uh, when the news barely had, had, you know, had been uh, digested. She had already concluded, um, this is this being General Coakley, that uh, it was all Farrakh. And don't ask about any supervisor. So I think that the failure but, here was to
1: investigate... Uh, uh, I certainly, not just as an attorney represented, represented impacted defendants, but as a member of the public, I certainly would have seen, like to seen, Martha Coakley questioned about what she knew about all this, right? Because she decided policy on what the office was going to do and how it was going to respond to these emerging crises. And, you know, whether or not it was right or wrong, whether or not, uh, you you know, she did something itself that was misconduct. any, Any type of record developed on that front whatsoever, but it sort of ended with, the people who are the head of the criminal bureau at the AG's office. Right. And there's a little bit of sound interference here. I'm sorry yeah. about that.
2: I'm not sure if it's me, but um, you know, if you were, if this were a, a traditional investigation, you would start with uh, Martha Coakley, and she has the clearest motive that anyone could ever have. It's, it's. You can download it well, from I- one of several Supreme Court websites. She wanted the Supreme Court of the United States to believe that this lab was infallible, so much so that you don't need the, whip, the, the chemist to testify. You just press print on a machine, and it's going to print out the, the standardized result that would any other chemist would also obtain. That's a huge motive for cover-up, and I don't know why we just pretend that that well, didn't happen.
1: When you're starting out with your theory of the case, yeah, obviously you look at that. And then as far as like building the case, you build up from the people who are willing to say things. And in this particular circumstance, a lot of people in the attorney general's office didn't say things. And in fact, the, um, hearing officer, uh, and also Judge Kerry himself noted that former uh, assistant attorney generals had lied
0: under oath. Like, What more do you need? Like, why is it when they lie under oath, nothing happens? But if if you or I were to lie under oath, we'd get the book thrown at us.
2: Right. It'd be nice to know how many chemists said we follow a swig drug.
0: Right. Under oath. Dude, right there. That is like right there for dismissing all these cases. Why did every chemist lie on the stand and say they were following regulations that they didn't, that they knew they did not come close to following? So let's, let's get to the email. Sure. So in, uh, April of 2011, uh, April 22nd, Sonia emailed, um, at 1131 AM, uh, Sonia emailed, or excuse me, 1120 AM Sonia emailed, uh, Annie Dukin and said, Hey Annie, I hope all is well in Boston and your court schedule hasn't been too hectic. I'm just wondering what you guys, uh, do with BZP results. Do you report it as BZP? Question mark? If so, do you report it as what the drug actually is? Okay. If, if so, yeah. do you report it as an E quote or not? I know that it is not a prescription drug, but a while back, Cam, uh, said to call it an E. So I'm, sh- I'm sure how. If at all, it falls under that class. Thanks. Yeah,
2: I would say it probably should have read. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, it's it should have said I'm not sure.
1: Right.
0: But uh, Cam is is Alan Stevenson, the former supervisor of both labs, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. And so- we had. In, I have seen an email. I don't have. I couldn't find it before this episode, but I had so- seen an email from 2004 with Alan Stevenson directing people to call something a class C e that was not. Uh, scheduled in Massachusetts. Um,
2: um, yeah, so first of all, this is not mentioned, I don't believe, um, that that factoid. I mean, I think that email might be mentioned in the OIG supplemental that one chemist emailed another chemist without saying their names because wouldn't that be irrelevant to know that <laughs> Sonia Farrakh, uh, a uh, uh, surprisingly sober-sounding uh, uh, Sonia Farrakh, is emailing <laughs> Annie Dukin about something that's unrelated to either's agenda, right? They're, this is them trying to compare notes and be on the same page. And this email is a huge problem if you're trying to promote the theory that one was just in a was just rushing. Because I mean, if you're rushing, why are you writing emails about BZP? And and the other one is supposedly high as a kite and can't get you know uh, can't get enough things um, up her nose. Uh, why is she emailing uh, about BZP? So. There, that, that confounds the, the the prevailing theories for, for both labs, uh, and I think that should have been the investigation uh, roadmap, which is go straight to Cam and say, Cam, did you tell people to to report out class E's as uh, I mean, I mean, uh, BCP as a class E?
1: Kind of a yes, yes or no question. The office actually uh, interviewed him, and uh, that was not uh, one of the subjects of conversation. Mm.
2: That's too bad
0: so so then so annie responds 10 minutes later hey sonia this week isn't too bad but next week looks crazy i was in fall river yesterday are you and rebecca coming down on uh, coming down here on wednesday if so it will be great to see you as for bzp we, we report it as bzp and currently call it class e it is scheduled one federally but it is not scheduled in the Massachusetts General Legislature. Thanks, Annie. So, guys, please unpack that statement right there.
1: It's not scheduled. It's not illegal.
2: <laughs> and I like that she says it's we we currently call it Class E,
0: and we do call it BZP. Right. We call it the drug that it actually is. We don't make up a name for it like we do with those other drugs. Like what? What? <laughs> We call it BZP, like what the hell else are you going to call it? Number one. And number two, they're making up laws on the stand to send people to jail for, for possession or to hopefully send people to jail for possession of drugs they know is not illegal in Massachusetts.
2: All right. I mean, certainly that, is, that would be a crushing admission if this had ever been put to a, a real trial, right? Right. That's one of those, like, you, you know, um, yeah, you, you it's exhibit A and there's no exhibit B.
1: Right. I mean, that's the sort of thing that is so crushing that, you know, even if the jury was inclined to believe the defendant did it, what the government was doing at the time was so morally appropriate that uh, dismissal should result.
0: Absolutely. Because they're knowingly lying.
2: Right. Because look, it is possible. And I think there's some blame that go around on all sides about BZP and other substances. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I I never like to second guess attorneys. It's not an easy job um, as either prosecutor or defense attorney. Uh, And I know that CPCS or or, um, private attorneys, uh, you know, you have limited resources sometimes and limited time, and you're not going to sit there and look up everything in Merck manual or whatever. But, um, it, it, you know, it's possible. Well, it's- I've- Sorry?
1: I've always done that. But
2: Okay, well, uh, I'm not going to comment <laughs> on what the standard of care is, but I, but I certainly think that's what I would do. Um, uh, that would be the first thing I think I would do as I'm easing my way into the case. Um, but uh, certainly it's possible to conceive of a situation where an attorney who's a little bit rushed doesn't check and therefore assumes something is classy and doesn't know. Right, and that defense just went out the window with that email. Right, they knew, they knew, and not only do they know, but Cam Stevenson apparently had been telling people do it as classy. So there, there's there's some um, there's some problems there that that uh, should have been investigated.
0: It, it's and this was this email, if you recall, from the interview they did in 2016 with Dukan that we played on this podcast uh, in season one. They had Duke and read this email to them. This email exchange, correct? Is, am I remembering that correctly? I Think so. I believe that they did, and like, there's no follow up. Right. <laughs> like, right. okay, just, yes. just read this yes. and put yes. it on the right. record.
1: Right. Now, amazing. moving on. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay,
0: cool. You 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 conspired to lie on the stand about classifications of drugs. No questions No further questions. Let's move on. Like, right. why the fuck are they doing that? Why, like, what is it, to Ilias's point? Why are they like this? Has nothing to do with rushing. This no, is actually reminded, putting themselves in danger.
2: It reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Bart Simpson was making Manhattan's for the mob uh, in their speakeasy and ended up being painted as the crime boss by all the other uh, witnesses um, <laughs> uh, solely because the, the the kid makes a mean Manhattan. Uh, that's what I feel like when they had to read that email. They were trying to get. Someone to believe that, that this she was the architect of this of this scheme,
0: right? But the, even in there, you can tell like we. It's not I say it's BZ. I say BZP is classy. E, it's we, the entire lab, you not know, what,
1: Annie Duke. What's really telling is when you look at the attorney general's well, the transcripts of the interviews they did with chemists and so uh, Farak and everyone else a law student could have done a better job, right? When there's something that, you know, like, so basically in law school and when you get a job working in in litigation, you're taught how to frame questions uh, and direct and cross-examinations. But when you get some of the answers that came out of the witnesses' mouths, uh, you know, there's no way anyone with any experience, you know, even law school students wouldn't have asked follow-up questions if they, you know, didn't have tanking the whole thing uh, in their mind the whole time.
0: Absolutely. So here's uh, Sonia's Farak nine minutes later. Rebecca and I are coming down next Wednesday for the training. I think I've heard that it starts at eight, but do you know when it's supposed to end? Gotta love Fall River, huh? I've been, I've been there a couple times. Rebecca actually has a case there next Tuesday. The courthouse is pretty nice and it reminds me of the federal courthouse here in Springfield. Thanks for your BZP input. I knew that federally it is scheduled one, but you know how the Mass General Legislature are for keeping up with the times. Just wanted to make sure that we are calling it the same thing so you emboss, so you, as you do in Boston, in case chemists from both labs are needed at the same trial. Take care.
1: <laughs> well, The stuff about the courthouse and the cafe across the street were true.
2: <laughs> so uh, in, in legal um, circles, this would be called a conspiracy uh, because it's a, there's an, uh, a, a plan uh, to do an illegal act. Uh, and uh, there's an agreement that each will participate uh, in said illegal act. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, w- uh, word, I don't even know if that's ever mentioned anywhere. I mean, you know, there's a debate about whether you can have a conspiracy within an organization. I don't want to go there, but my point is there was never any discussion in the OIG report about people agreeing to break the law that I don't remember that
1: concept ever being deployed. But that couldn't be possible if there's only one sole bad actor,
0: right? Yeah. She's the sole bad actor. Come on guys. And, it's, and, it's not like they're. But what kills me about this, guys, I, I don't mean to monopolize this, but what kills me about this is they are. This is the most casual conversation about conspiring to give false testimony, right? Like it, they're talking about the cafe, they're talking about Fall River, they're talking about you know General Law. Oh, it sucks to testify. Blah 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 blah. Oh yeah, I just want to make sure we were we got our lies straight in court. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like this is like what the mob does.
2: No, but, but 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 more to the point, this would be the this would be the email that you actually open your OIG supplemental report section on BZP with, right? And I don't. I mean, I, I, I'll I'll go back and check again. Uh, it's it's hampered by the fact that the OIG suddenly forgot all the chemists' names when they did their supplemental report. But I don't see in the report that in April of 2011, one chemist emailed another chemist in a different lab and asked if, uh, if they could compare notes to make sure that they're both equally lying about the status of BZP. I don't remember that in the supplemental OIG report. Um, and that w- that's, um, I assume the OIG saw this email. So I think that would be a fair question um, to you know, anybody who worked on this, especially anyone who received an award for working on this. What, was, what happened to that email?
0: It, not just an award, the most prestigious award in the state. We we can go over that in another episode, but these guys gave themselves or whatever, they were nominated and given the most prestigious award for public service in the state for this investigation. That is an utter disgrace. And um and what what also is so striking here is what like just as John Q public, you think you know, the legisl- if if you think of government at all, you know that the legislature makes the laws and the judiciary, you know, prosecutes the laws right here. We have a song about that. (laughs) Here we have, um, here we have chemists mocking the legislature for not, for basically not making the laws and the laws going to them, defaulting to them to be defined in court. That's what that to me is, is what's going on here. Right guys.
2: Well, the reference to MGL I think is referring to Mass General Laws, but your point is the same, which is that yeah. the Mass General Laws are created by the legislature, um, uh, and 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 that's our system, and and any other alternative would be terrible. Uh, and so, if you don't, if you think BZP should be illegal, there's a pretty simple thing that you do, right? You call a number for your your uh, representative or senator, whatever they're called in Massachusetts. Your uh, member of the King's court or whatever, uh, and say, you know, make this illegal if that's how you feel about it, but you don't do it the other way. You don't treat it as illegal and then hope that someday the facts follow. Uh, and that's why the, uh, Annie Dukin's use of the term currently is very, very, uh, interesting. It's reminds me of the comedian who introduces his wife as his quote, current wife. Um, <laughs> it, it it, it, it suggests some uh, 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 moving around of deck chairs uh, on the t- on the surface of the Titanic that I think um, is interesting.
0: Absolutely, and um, and aren't these guys putting themselves? I mean, if in a normal world and not this crazy world of the Massachusetts laws, aren't wouldn't these guys be putting themselves as at risk? for lying on the stand about the classification of these drugs. Do they seem at all nervous about that or in any way thinking that this is wrong?
1: Uh, They don't seem nervous. And I think they were putting themselves at jeopardy and it wasn't just in respect to what chemists were testifying to, but the representations that were made in uh, connection with the acquisition of federal federal grant funding. So that really could have got them in hot water you know, perjury itself is extremely serious, but uh, you know, getting what about
0: a, conspiring we'll to give false
1: testimony. Yeah, like all of the above are not good things, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> and they don't care. Well, that's
0: the thing; they're so casual. They're, they're just like, you know what? Because they know this is my this is my larger point. They are working for the prosecutors. What are the prosecutors gonna? throw them in jail for doing what they want. And that that brings me, I'm sorry, Chris, I I cut you off. Were were you going to say something? Uh, I mean, maybe it's because
1: the worst case of prosecutorial misconduct in the history of the United States, the worst result that has happened so far is a suggestion, recommendation that the worst defender in that gets a suspension instead of, uh, you know, her bar license being pulled Permanently, right? right. So maybe if uh, the SJC or higher courts were more critical of prosecutors who committed fraud impacting hundreds of thousands of cases. So I I know it's only sixty thousand or so convictions that have been overturned, but still, all these uh, scandals have implicated more cases. You know, if if. That isn't enough to pull someone's law license. Then why on earth would the chemist be afraid? Right, right,
2: right. And and I again, I'm going to sound uh, maybe I'm over um, dramatizing the what's at stake here. But if you everybody make makes the three circle of uh, circles of a Venn diagram, okay. And in one of the circles, you put narcotics. I'll just for, for shorthand, okay. The other uh, uh, circle, you say prescription drugs, okay? The third circle, just put a question mark, okay? And ask yourself, what falls in the part of that circle that is not a narcotic, so it's not scheduled A, B, C, or D, um, and it's not a prescription drug? It's basically everything in your house except for what's in your medicine cabinet. So the idea that you can criminalize anything you want. I mean, I think we need to really think about this. I mean, what stops you from making floor wax classy? What stops you right. from making anything? Uh, you know, that has scary chemical names in it. Look at the back of floor wax. It has stuff that sounds illegal. It should be illegal. Um, Johnson Johnson baby shampoo has stuff that sounds sketchy. So uh, powder. the fact that this is, this is just sort of like, Oh, whatever. This sort of a bureaucratic mess up. No, this is a massive power grab, um, and, and, and I don't even want to know how uh, who was disproportionately impact, impacted, because I can probably guess, but um, this is very unsettling, that something that the legislature didn't say was illegal, and you don't need a prescription for it, and therefore you have pretty much every right to have it that I can think of, uh, why, is this even, why are we even uh, soft-pedaling the, 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 the false effort to criminalize it?
0: And so here we go. So two months or three months later uh, in July, um, Peter Pirro sends the following email, July 13th of 2011 at 1.22 PM. Peter Pirro sends this email to Julianne Nasif, who was the director of the lab and who everyone who worked at the lab said was so hands-off, they had no idea what was going on in the lab. Hi, Julie. We possibly have... Uh, MDPV, one of the bath salts. DEA Diversion considers it an analog of MDEA Schedule 1. I have three questions. How should we be reporting federally Schedule 1 drugs that do not appear in the mass laws, i.e. BZP? How should we report Schedule 1 analogs, i.e. MDPV? Is this addressed anywhere in our Controlled Substances Act? The Massachusetts Class C section only mentions prescription drugs other than those Included in classes A, B, C, D, and E subsection. Uh, Julianne responds that four minutes later, I, I would report the compounds with no legal interpretation and leave it up to the DA. Right there. That is, that is a directive from, from Julianne Nasif to have the, D, the DA say what that the drugs are either classy or whatever, like have, have uh, them do the classification, which makes sense, right? Do you guys think that that makes sense? Well, I mean, like for a
1: government employee to say the DA's office should look at this and do the legal research, uh, that makes sense. However, I believe there's a statute that was in place at the time saying that they had to, the laboratory was required to provide results to uh, the government uh, regarding uh, the testing of the samples, and I think that may have covered whether or not uh, it was an illegal compound. Well,
2: there, there's an, i mean, I don't even know where you start on this. There are a number of problems. So, first of all, this email is discussed in the OIG supplemental report, um, and I—I'm I, going to read the sentence that that covers this because I think uh, there's a couple of things that are problematic, uh, it's, uh, I'll, 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 it reads as follows. In July 2011, one Hinton Drug Lab chemist, so Peter Pirro is now a chemist, not, not a supervisor, right? He's just a regular old chemist, sought guidance from the director of the Division of Analyt- Analytical Chemistry. That's Miss Nassif, right, uh, Jamie?
0: Yes, correct. Uh,
2: okay, mm-hmm. so she doesn't have, they, they, we don't know her name. We just know she's the director of the Division of Analytical Chemistry. Um, and I guess there's a footnote that's probably boring um, about how to report BZP. Well, that, well, that's not true. It's how do we report any drugs that do not appear in the mass laws, i.e., BZP. Yep. Um, but this is now narrowed. It's cabin to BZP, and we know that that's a problem of the uh, uh, of scope of the OIG's investigation because it was not just o, uh, BZP, and I think they knew it. Um, who instructed? So now some bad grammar. I guess they're talking about the, direct, the director. So that's Nassif instructed the chemist to report only the identity of the substance without certifying that it fell within any class under Massachusetts law. Well, that's not quite what, that's not quite what she said. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, um, she's saying, leave it up to the DA. Yes. Right. And so that's omitted from, from this. That's your point, Jamie. Yeah. But also uh, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, this legal interpretation. I mean, is that what this, these people were doing? Were they doing legal interpretation when they had a notarized certificate?
1: Well, I I guess I can clarify a little bit about the analysis that's supposed to take place. And, um, if you haven't actually looked at the general laws, um, this might be informative, but there's an extremely long list of prohibitive substances under there, uh, you know, hundreds of chemicals long, and so any line ADA looking at uh, a case where the you know the police listed the offenses class A B C D or E, and they didn't actually list the name of the chemical substance but the generic, um, you can see a situation where the ADA would be relying on the lab to give some instruction there. Um,
0: And so, I mean, clearly there was a lot of confusion and, uh, leaving it and it would just be interesting to see what the DA, if they did leave it up to the DAs, what the DAs would say about it. Right. I don't think the DAs are going to go into court if they're prosecuting a case and say that these are not federally, these are not scheduled in Massachusetts. So please go home. Right. So I haven't, oh, go Uh, ahead.
2: I've asked this question before Jamie but in your and, and remind me but, but in your experience have you received uh drug certs uh or seen them where they state what the substance is but then don't include a um uh, uh language uh, indicating that it fell within one of the one of the classes under mass law
0: No no
2: I, I mean not. excuse me I I I meant that question for Chris but um Meaning, would they come back and say it's peanut butter or it's floor wax? Do they do that? I I, I didn't think they did that, but um, but I could be wrong.
1: Well, certainly
2: not peanut butter. <laughs> but like, for example, you know, my client had ibuprofen uh, 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 on his person uh, at one point, and the police uh, were super excited when they seized that little baggie of ibuprofen, thinking that they were going to get commendation of the month but um, uh, and so they run it through the little machine and it says ibuprofen do they spit out I didn't see one but maybe I didn't look carefully but did they spit out a cert saying this contains ibuprofen period
1: you know I've seen uh, drug certificates that say uh, this was not a controlled substance but that's maybe less than uh, maybe less than five the entire time I've been looking at stuff that's come out of the in drug lab. And so
2: it just seems know. weird to certify something as what it is without it being part of a class. And yeah. that's why the, the Nassif email says legal interpretation. And that's not what these guys are doing, as I understand it. They're not, le- there's no legal interpretation. Any chemist who, by the way, none of them are lawyers, right? So law- law- non lawyers should not be doing legal interpretation as a general rule. I think that's a fair statement. Um, so they're not doing legal interpretation. They are simply looking in a book.
0: Right. And it, like that, somehow that doesn't, when they're in court, that doesn't get translated. It's, you know, we ran the tests. We did, we verified that this you know, substance was actually Class E, and they kind of do a dog and pony show. But in reality, to your point, Elias, they're literally just looking in a book.
2: Right. But yeah. I'm just, I'd be, I'd be curious and, 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 I, and I will welcome, uh, I don't know if, if you, if you guys uh, have any issues with my audio, but I would welcome anyone emailing me um, a drug cert that says the following is, you know, whatever, not uh, classified. Period. No, no reference any class. I'd, I'd be curious to see one of those, um, because that's. I, I don't believe they were doing that, but I don't actually have a basis for that. That's just my hunch.
0: Right. So, because I mean, honestly, I think that would sink the case in court, right? And, and I'm sure they knew that. Um, Well, it would
2: just be weird. It's like not your job to say this contains, you know, baking soda right? this contains sleeping pill well sleeping pills might be subject to prescription but um, you know this contains um, uh, 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 granulated sugar
1: so for instance, I think I may have seen in uh, individual circumstances there was concern uh, public safety concern about a certain filler that was included in um, uh, I think it was purported uh, cocaine, Uh, that was being distributed to people. And and the government wanted to know whether or not that specific thing um, was in town A or town B. I think I have seen drug certificates saying this particular thing, even though it's not a controlled substance, was there. But that was for a specific purpose. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know, in normal course.
2: That would be to sort of enhance some existing other charge that you might have.
1: or I mean, there may have been some immediate public safety concern that was involved in the case, something like that.
2: But I mean, I have, uh, you know, friends that uh, were duped into buying oregano thinking it was marijuana. And it wasn't me, of course, uh, listeners, but, No, never, um, and, uh, and they, you know, let's say the police pull you over and you got your little Ziploc bag of, of oregano and you're $15 lighter. Um, and they send it over. Do they send you a drug cert that says, we certify that this is oregano? No, it just says negative for controlled substance. Yeah. So right. I, I, I think that that advice that supposedly, or instruction that Miss Nassif gave um, um, is is sort of like ludicrous, that she she took all of what, four minutes to type? Um, is sort of like ludicrous and should have been investigated itself because I don't believe they ever did that. So that doesn't mm-hmm. even reflect an actual practice, in my opinion. right. And I think that was like, def- that was like a, that was like a, how dare you fill my inbox with something potentially incriminating? So I'm going to pound out some sort of self serving CYA email.
0: And, but how was this not like escalated before this? Clearly, Peter Pirro had the same questions that Dukin and Farrakh had, but instead of asking Julian Nasif, they ask, they ask each other and they're just like, oh yeah, okay, cool. We'll, we'll make up the rules. We, we don't, we don't know what our director actually wants, but, you know, we'll just do something that's completely opposite of what she wants and make up a uh, make up a classification that we know is false. It's, this is crazy. But so here is, I have this email from Tune office. in next week for the dramatic conclusion of this episode of Rigged. Thank you for listening to the Rigged Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.